Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. This is our Sunday School Hour. We're presenting this lesson on uh, August 13th of 2023. And um, we're going to be talking about what is the obvious question. As we go through Galatians and we uh, try to understand Paul's argument here, um, notice that he kind of puts it together piece by piece by piece. So in each one of these lessons here, it's not going to answer all of our questions, um, but part of them. And then the next lesson will fit together with that. And the next one will fit together with that. And hopefully by the time we finish all of this, we've got a good, solid understanding of what Paul is dealing with. And certainly we have more uh, knowledge and resources and understanding than the Galatians ever did. Now, remember the Galatians, uh, that was a region that they were in. It wasn't a particular country, and it wasn't even just a particular church. It was a circular letter that was given to several of the churches in that particular region, and uh, they were Gentiles with a Gentile background, and uh, these Judaizers came, and they were just um, kind of adding just enough to create a little bit of doubt in the uh, Galatian believers. And by the way, just a little bit of doubt can go a long way, can't it? In fact, if you're ever trying to witness to somebody that's in another religion or somebody from a cult or something like that, if you can uh, sometimes give just enough of the truth in order to create doubt in their minds, uh, that goes a long, long way because for the first time they say, well, maybe I'm not completely right. Well, this was uh, the devil using some reverse psychology and this was on uh, true believers. And they started thinking, well, maybe, maybe we're not right about this. And maybe Paul didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe Paul's bad instead of being good. Maybe he's a, a deceiver himself. And so they had to work through these things. So Paul doesn't just say, oh, just trust me or anything. He gives them reasons to believe in the gospel of grace. I think it's good for us to think about this as well because uh, every other religion except for biblical Christianity and even some so-called Christian groups will try to play the Judaizer role here. There's something more that you have to do. There's something that you didn't get quite right or you've kind of left out. And some of them aren't content to say, um, like there's one group that says you have to be baptized to be saved. Okay, I've been baptized, I'm safe. But if you talk to them, they would also go, well, not quite because you weren't baptized by us. It has to be baptism by us, so it's done in the right way and in the right place and all of that. Well, that causes a lot of doubt and confusion for some believers. So it's good to know what the Word of God has to say. And so um, as Paul makes his way through this, he's anticipating then a question that the Galatians would ask, and maybe even the Judaizers would ask if they were talking to Paul, then what in the world is the purpose of the law? Now, uh, our introduction says here, if the law of the Old Testament cannot save and the New Testament emphasizes salvation by faith, then why did God give the law and is God contradicting himself? 
Some people actually teach that if you are a Jew, there's a different way to come to God and to be saved than for the Gentiles. And uh, perhaps they get that because it seems as though in the early days of the church, the church moved from a purely Jew, um, Jewish congregation, I guess we would say, or body, to more of a Gentile uh, framework. In fact, it's certainly that way now. There are a ton more Gentiles in the church worldwide as opposed to how many Jews are in the church. How did this happen? A lot of it through the influence of the Apostle Paul and the theology that we have freedom from the law. And some of the Jews just never went along with that or they could never make a break from it where the Gentiles would say, oh, that sounds perfectly good to me and uh, we'll receive that and accept it. But you have to remember Judaism is not sort of like, uh, you know, a lot of people now, they could be a Baptist one day and then they could be an assembly of God the next. And then after that, they could be a Methodist. And then after that, they could be a non-denominational person. Uh, we just look at it as a denomination is where you attend and what you are affiliated with right now. Not so with Judaism. Judaism was a cradle to the grave religion. It dominated every part of your life, even before you could make any choices about it. Little baby boys did not choose to be circumcised, for example. And uh, the food that they ate, the kosher food, that certainly would not be the children's first choice. It was something that they didn't have any choice in. And this is the way we eat. This is the way we dress. This is what our schedule is like. This is when we say our prayers. These are the things that we memorize out of the Bible. And uh, this is the day that we go to worship the Lord. And so all of that encompassed their lives from cradle to the grave. And uh, devout Roman Catholics are much like that because their religion, it's more than just joining a denomination or attending a certain church. It covers everything. There are certain things you do from the time you were born until the time you die. Some of them are in your control. Some of them are not in your control. I've always uh, thought it was kind of sad when you think about a Roman Catholic that before they die, they need to receive last rites. The problem is, for a lot of us, whenever we get to the point of needing last rites, we're not conscious or we're not uh, able to ask or make any decisions for that. Somebody has to do that for us. Well, what if they forget? What if they don't do it right or something? It's just kind of a strange system maybe for all of us. So these Judaizers just never made the break from Judaism to Jesus. And that's a lot of what the book of Acts is about as the church goes from Judaism, the religion and their rituals and their, uh, all of the things that they have to do to trusting fully in Christ and finding liberty in him. Now, if we were not raised that way and we weren't raised under laws and rules and regulations and customs and all of that, we don't really always see the idea of freedom in Christ. In fact, for a lot of us, if we were used to just running free and doing whatever we want before we were saved and then we're born again, then it seems like 
the Bible sort of restricts us. But if you think about it, it's not in uh, the ways that it would have restricted the Old Testament, I mean, would have restricted the Jews. They would have looked at the lifestyle of a Christian and said, wow, it's incredible to be free in Christ because they don't have everything that is in the law hanging over them or on their backs, burdening them down and keeping them from running the race of the Christian life, right? So um, you kind of can see where the Judaizers are coming from, but uh, understanding our sociology or our psychology uh, is, is not the key. The key is receiving the gospel. What is the truth? Jesus came to earth, lived the law, and then was crucified on the cross and took the wrath of our law-breaking from God the Father, and he was punished in our place. Now we're no longer under the law. Now Christ said, don't think that I came to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill the law. If you uh, ever have a bad cold or something like that and you take antibiotics for it, one of the things they will tell you is they will say, start this today and follow the directions on the prescription and take it all the way through. Don't stop taking the antibiotic just because you uh, think that you feel better. Take it all the way to the end. Now, uh, not terribly long ago, I went to the doctor and got some, uh, got a Z-Pack, and you take so many the first day, a little less the second day, a little less the third day, until you finally finish it up. I didn't take any more of it because I was well. I didn't need it anymore because the role of the antibiotic have been fulfilled in my life. It's not that antibiotics are no good. It's not that they don't exist. It is simply that their uh, purpose had been fulfilled, at least for that particular time. Now, the good news is Christ fulfilled the law for us. But if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, you see it emphasized he is the better sacrifice. There's a better covenant. And he did what he did once for all. We don't have to constantly sacrifice Jesus. We don't have to go and turn the Lord's Supper, the uh, fruit of the vine and the bread into the body and the blood of Christ and have a fresh application of salvation into our lives. That's Roman Catholic doctrine, by the way. And uh, it's somewhat blasphemous because Christ paid for it all. And unlike the antibiotics, he fulfilled the law and he paid the price for our law breaking once for all. We never have to be saved again. We never have to take a fresh application of the blood of Jesus Christ in order to fulfill it. It has been fulfilled. And so Paul gives an explanation here in Galatians 3, 19 through 25 of what the law did for us and how it brought us to the place of being saved and receiving the fulfillment of Jesus Christ's payment for the sin and the broken law. We don't need the law anymore. What is the purpose? Verse 19, chapter 3. What purpose then does the law serve? He's going to say it was added because of transgressions. In other words, it's about sin, isn't it? Till the seed, and remember that singular seed with the capital S, as we saw last week, is referring to the seed from Abraham. Paul said that's Christ, okay? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. 
that, that shows that there's a limited application of what the law does. It's because of sin and it's until Christ in your life and my, my life and uh, in history and all of that. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels. Not exactly sure what that means, but somehow angels were involved in this by the hand of a mediator, somebody between us and God, somebody between the God who could look and he was wrathful and angry toward us because we broke his law and the mediator is in between God and man. Who do you suppose that might be? Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only because you don't need that, but God is one. So what a different situation where we think about the mediator also being God. He represents us in front of God the Father, and yet the mediator is also God himself, God the Son, the member of the Trinity. That's where this differs from uh, what humans would do. So verse 21 says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. That would mean Jesus and God the Father would be at odds with one another, wouldn't it? For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, all of sin that comes short of the glory of God, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, before that belief in Christ came, we were kept under guard. We had a guardian, and that guardian was the law. And we were kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, further explanation, the law was our tutor. Now, tutor is not like we think of in our world, somebody that helps you with your math homework. Now, our tutor, uh, now the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, to escort us and lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, there is no longer a need for the tutor. Now, Paul is telling us as we kind of go, uh, let's make some observations as we just go back over these verses a little bit and uh, see if we can get some understanding. If I can get my page to turn here right now, oh, that was too far. Um, he starts off and he says the purpose of the law. And he said it's because of transgression, because of transgression, all sin. We sin against our conscience. Even if we don't know what's good or bad or right or wrong, we have a conscience. Everybody does. And we sin against our conscience. And eventually your conscience will quit working or at least working very well. Paul talked to Timothy about people who had their conscience seared as with a hot iron. It, it doesn't feel anything anymore. It doesn't uh, uh, mess us up anymore. It doesn't condemn us anymore or convict us anymore. Uh, you've probably been through that. The first time you did something you knew was wrong, that you were conscious of, you, it really ate you alive. You had trouble sleeping. You were worried about what would happen or what other, what other people would think. And then when it seemed to be okay and it brought more pleasure than it did consequence, then your conscience kind of uh, was seared. 
It wasn't as strong as it was. And so you did it again and you did the sin again and you did it again and again and again because uh, you liked it. I've never been tempted to eat liver because I don't like liver. Okay, but there are other things that I would be tempted to and I'm tempted and it is a temptation to me because I like it. And the same thing is true with you. We don't hate sin as we should. And so our conscience kind of uh, is used by the Lord to awaken us to the fact that we are sinners. And that's why most people will at least admit that they're not perfect. They will at least admit that they have sin in their lives. Now they may try to justify it or redefine it or whatever, but uh, it's there until that conscience is seared over and it's more unfeeling. And Paul said this is till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And you remember that when God made the promise to Abraham and to his seed, it was that in you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's a messianic promise. That's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not all Jews can save and not all the uh, seeds of Abraham can save. He uh, had some other children after Sarah died, if you uh, read in Genesis about that. And they had no power to save, and their religion, their rituals had no power to save us either. It's always been this. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and that was because he looked ahead to the day when that promised seed would come who would take care of everything with the ultimate sacrifice. We're always heading toward Jesus, no matter what we do. Always head toward Jesus. And so the seed's going to come, and it's going to be okay, and, and angels are involved in all of this. And then Christ becomes the mediator. Paul told Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, right? The man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is unique because as the one in between us and, and the Holy Father, he is God, of course, and so he can reach out toward God the Father, but he's also man. So he's reaching down to us. You've never had a mediator in any situation like that who could be both the, the righteous one and also uh, related to the sinful ones. Now, he was without sin, of course, but he became sin while he was on the cross. And he did that for us that we could receive the righteousness of God in Christ. He's a unique mediator here. And uh, mediators don't mediate just for one, Paul said, but uh, God is one. And so Jesus is mediating for us toward God. And he's also mediating for God the Father toward us. So when Christ died on the cross, who did he die for? And you know, we're real quick to say, well, he died for us. Well, that certainly is true if properly understood. But really, Christ died for God. He died to fulfill the will of God. He died to fulfill the plan of God. He died for the glory of God. He died in obedience to God. And so he was suffering on the cross in the way that God the Father had ordained so that we could enter into salvation. We put ourselves into the equation way too fast. He died on the cross, and yes, he paid for our sins, but mainly to glorify the Lord and to obey him so that we could enter into all of that. And so Paul is talking here that Jesus was doing this as God for God 
in a way that would also benefit us. Now, so the law doesn't go against God. It's not like there's one way of salvation and God the Father said, well, I didn't really want that, but I guess I'll have to take it because Jesus twisted my arm and negotiated a good deal for everyone else. That's not the case. They're in total and perfect agreement on this. And this is why the Father receives anybody at any time, anywhere that comes through Jesus to him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes where? To the Father is what we're talking about, except by me. So you want to come to God? You've got to come one way. You've got to come through Jesus. And that's the way that it has all been made. And Christ is your mediator through his blood, through his death, through his sacrifice to get you to God. That's why we don't pray through a pastor or a priest, as the case may be, or a dead saint or anything like that. There's only one mediator, only one who can uh, take us to God. And um, just as an aside here, that's why it says in the book of Romans, when we pray, the Holy Spirit takes our prayer. Now, our prayers are never perfect, and so the Holy Spirit cleans it up and uh, takes it then to Jesus Christ as the mediator who takes it then to the Father. And so that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. And it's not just a formality. It's because that's our only access to God. Jesus' name and Jesus' uh, will and Jesus' work on the cross and Jesus' work as our intercessor in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. All of that is fitting together on this. We don't pray in our own merit or our own worthiness, do we? And so uh, does that mean they contradict or anything? Certainly not. And uh, then he makes a statement, if a law could have brought righteousness, God certainly would have done it. Why would God offer his son and allow him to take the wrath of God, not to mention the shame, the humiliation, and the pain and the suffering on the cross? Why would he put his son through that if there was another way? And of course he wouldn't have. If there had been another way, the father would have said, Jesus, you stay up here. And he would have told us, take that other way. But there was... <clears throat> and certainly is no other way. Righteousness comes through Christ. So what did the law do? It was the law of God, our conscience, and the written word of God that tells us we're wrong, we're evil, we are bad, we fall short of the glory of God. We don't do what we're supposed to do. Sometimes we never get around to... Uh, understanding what that even might be. We just live life in oblivion. And then there are those times when there are things that we are supposed to do and we never get around to that. There are things we shouldn't do and we tend to do those things. And then there, are the, the, there is the issue that Jesus brought up of even the thought and the motivation can be sin. If a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, then uh, he's committed adultery in his heart. The thoughts are even a problem for all of us. That puts us in an enormous predicament here. So why did God have us feel guilty? Why did God bring us to the point where we felt the shame and the sting of our disobedience and, and the brokenness over our sin, the conviction of our sin, we call it? And sometimes I think as Baptists, we are so used to hearing, I was convicted of my sin. We think that means I felt bad over it. No, conviction is what a judge does after a jury has found you guilty 
and uh, the gavel comes down and he says, I find you, you have been found guilty of murder in the first degree and I sentence you to this and this. And from that point on, even if you thought the murder was justified, you are a convict, you are a convicted person. And the conviction of sin is God convincing us not only that we shouldn't have done it and we feel bad because of the consequences, but to understand we are under the conviction, under the death penalty of sin, we're a convict before God. I hope that makes sense and helps you understand it. It's not about how you feel about it and it's not about what happens. It's about who you are before God. You have broken his law. So you are a convict. And uh, so what does that do for us? Why does that just make us feel bad? Do we just have to live under sin and shame and brokenness for the rest of our lives? No. He says there's a way out. And he says that this law, this guardian that is always with us is used to bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the word guard, talking about a guardian that escorts us there. And we're kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. While that's going on, we don't get it. We feel bad. We don't know what to do with it. We can't do anything with it, but the truth is going to be revealed eventually. And then he talks about a tutor, and that's the slave that would take a, a child that was not capable of making decisions. He would take him to school. He would bring him home from school. He would watch him when he was playing. He would watch him when he was doing his work assigned by the father. He was watching him and his conduct with his siblings. And uh, he made sure that he was respectful. He made sure that he was doing right. He made sure that he was obeying. And uh, that's what the tutor's job was. And he did it until the child was no longer a minor. Then he would reach adulthood. There would be a ceremony. And then this child could become an heir. He could spend his money. He could make decisions. All of those type of things. Not quite the way we think of a tutor. So let's uh, consider this. The law deals with sin, not salvation. That's coming out of those first couple of verses where he describes the purpose of the law. Now the Judaizers would say, well, the law is about salvation. Do this and you'll be saved. The law never did that. The law, all it did was point out our shortcomings. The law always pointed out where we fell short of the glory of God and showed us that we could never be exactly what God demanded. And so there it would... Uh, show us our limitations, show us our need for a mediator, show us our need for a sacrifice, show us our need for a savior. And the law was given, bullet point number one, because people are sinners. And it was given because people excuse their sins. We all do it and we've always done it, haven't we? Even Adam said, well, it's not my fault. It's a woman that you made and she gave to me and I ate. The woman blame the snake. And we always have an excuse and we're defensive for what we do. And uh, the law was given because people also, think about the day and age we live in, they redefine sin. And so it's no longer a sin to have sex before marriage or outside of marriage, no longer a sin to be a homosexual, no longer a sin to do any of that kind of stuff. But those same people who are living that lifestyle can sure point out where you mess up and where your hypocrisy is. And then when they redefine sin, you may do something that the Bible doesn't condemn, but oh, is it ever evil in their sight? You're not 
politically correct, let's say. And so they would think that what the Bible says is actually sin. And that makes it tough. So we have to have an objective standard of what sin is. And that's what the law does. The law reveals sin. Think of the Ten Commandments. The law reveals sin and it exposes our hearts. It's more than just what you did, what you didn't do. It's mainly about what kind of a heart do you have? What kind of a nature do you have that you would be this kind of a person that displeases and rebels against God? So it's about sin, not salvation. It'll tell you where you're wrong, but the law can't fix it. Number two, God never contradicts himself. All of this works together. There have never been two ways of salvation. It's always been through faith in believing God, through faith, believing God on the basis of a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? A blood sacrifice, the innocent for the guilty. Even back in the Garden of Eden, an innocent animal had to die in order for uh, skins to be made to cover Adam and Eve properly. It was uh, pointing ahead to the coming of the Messiah, the ultimate sacrifice. And so uh, this is something where Paul said, this is not a contradiction. All of this works together. And if the law had worked to save us, God would have left it alone, as we said earlier. So never two ways of salvation. And if the law could save, God would never have sent Christ and Christ came not as an alternative, but as the way and the only way. Okay, I think we all know that, but that's what we've got to hammer. People think that there are just all these ways to God. Choose the one that you like. It's not a democracy. God as the king has determined how people will be saved, and that is through the blood of Christ, the only sacrifice, the only way. Number three, the law gives no power over our nature or over our guilt. The law gives no power. It cannot change your nature. You will still want to sin. In fact, the fact, the, the uh, idea that the law says you can't do that will make you want to do it all the more. You know, just try to go on a diet. Your doctor says you've got to quit eating this, and if you eat any more of it, uh, it's going to be bad and uh, whatever that may be, ice cream or something like that. Well, maybe you're not a person who eats a lot of ice cream. I don't. But if somebody were to tell me I could never have it again, all of a sudden it becomes the most important thing uh, in the refrigerator. I want it so badly. And that's the way it is with sin. And sin is much worse than eating ice cream, isn't it? And the nature that we have causes us to want to do it more when we say that we can't. We fantasize about it. We dream about it. We think about it. We talk about it. We obsess over all of it. And the law can do nothing about that because it can't change your nature. And once you have violated the law, there is nothing in the law that can take away all of your guilt. Okay? You're still a guilty sinner. So uh, the scripture says, uh, is, uh, has us confined under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And there's the answer, those who believe in Christ and who he is and what he did. And so uh, the law has a different purpose into us. And so it's like the law, because the standard of God is made so clear, 
honor your father and your mother. Well, who does that? Well, some people do it better than others, but nobody does it perfectly. And that hangs over us while we're living in our parents' household. Maybe you had a parent who said, well, I don't care if you like it or not. I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be your parent and to prepare you for adulthood. Man, that used to kind of make me mad. I thought I was ready now. Just let me do what I want to do and think what I want to think and we'll all be fine, old man. And uh, very rebellious in that type of thing. Well, as long as you put your head under my roof and your feet under my table, you'll do what I say. Man, that used to make me mad. Who do you think you are to do that? Well, what was happening there was just a small picture of what humanity has done for God since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden. Who do we think we are? And that sense of guilt and shame hangs over all of us for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And uh, so we try to deal with it psychologically. We try to deal with it with drugs. And we try to deal with, with it with alcohol and things like that. Some people get so distressed that they take their own life. And I cannot imagine taking your life thinking that's going to be your relief only to find out it's not. That things can get worse if you're not a Christian. And by the way, suicide does not automatically send you to hell. That's a Roman Catholic doctrine. That's not in the Bible. If you're a believer, suicide is a sin, but it's covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way. Uh, that was for free. And so all of this confinement and this feeling of guilt and this limitation, how come I can't do everything that I want? You know, even our um, laws in our society restrain us and even though the law does not explicitly say in the same way, thou shalt not murder, but there are laws against murdering, aren't there? And there are those times when maybe somebody, certainly not you or me, but they would feel like killing somebody and they don't because of one reason. They don't want to go to jail the rest of their life. They don't want to lose their freedom and they don't want to be executed. Well, there is a restraint that comes from the law. And even the moral law of God is kind of a restraint upon people in society and people are frustrated and they shake their fist in the face of God saying, I will do whatever I want to do. I'm tired of all of this hanging over me. And that's what Paul said. It's a guardian. It's like a tutor. It's always there. You're surrounded by sin and it is inescapable and it always has consequences, doesn't it? And the law leads us to one verdict. When I judge myself by God's law, by the Ten Commandments specifically, then what does it always tell me? I don't care who you are. If you're a human being and you are breathing and you're not Jesus Christ, it brings one verdict. We are all guilty before God. And so Jesus came as our only hope and he came to fulfill the law and take our punishment. Number four, the purpose of the law, the law reveals sin and points us to the Savior. And so it says it was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Why? With a purpose, not that we might be punished, but that we might be justified, made right before God. We receive the righteousness of Christ. He takes our sin. What a deal. You've never had a better deal than that. That's a wonderful thing and excitement. And Paul said that it's by faith, of course. We can never get enough of that. But after the faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Why? We've grown up. 
We don't need it anymore. The purpose of the tutor was to get us to the point of adulthood. And when we get saved, I know that from a human standpoint, we're a babe in Christ. But from a standpoint of rights, the moment a person becomes born again, I don't care if they've been saved for only five minutes, they have rights and privileges and a standing before God as an adult son. They're an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ, and that will never change. So the law shows our guilt and it smites our conscience and only faith in Christ can bring acquittal through justification. Now, I want to read you something from uh, John MacArthur. It says, the Greek word denotes a slave, when we talk about a tutor or a guardian, whose duty it was to take care of a child until adulthood. The guardian, maybe we would say nanny or something like that. The guardian escorted the children to and from school and watched over their behavior at home. Now listen to this. This reminds you of the law. Guardians were often strict disciplinarians, causing those under their care to yearn for the day when they would be free from their guardian's custody. The law was our tutor, which by showing us our sins was escorting us to Christ. And that's the point that Paul is making in here. It's not that there's this contradiction between law and grace, but that law and grace work together. The law brings us to grace, shows us the, needs for, the need for grace. And therefore, when we get saved, Christ is not just an addition to our life. He becomes our life because he is our Lord, our master, our savior, our king, and he is also our righteousness he is the one who has made us acceptable to God. Not our performance, not the law, but his performance and his keeping of the law. He fulfilled all of its demands for us. So take a moment and say thank you to the Lord Jesus for dying on the cross for us as the perfect sacrifice that we could never be. And thank him for the promise and the gift of eternal life by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for your time. I pray the Lord gives us all understanding of this issue better than we have ever had it before, that we can go deep in all of this and rest in the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you for your time, and God bless you, and we'll see you next week, Lord willing.